A time is coming when nations will rise against nations. Famines will dry the world. Earthquakes will shake the foundations of the earth. A time of great evil and of great distress. The beginning of the end of the world. The end of time. The end of sin. Then, when no one expects, heaven will open. Jesus will return. The earth will be made new. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So keep watch and be ready for the beginning of the end. In 2010, there was a massive earthquake in the ocean causing a huge tsunami that hit some of the islands of Indonesia. And there were hundreds and hundreds of people that died, but nobody should have died. Indonesia has an early warning system for tsunamis, and they would always know way before the tsunami actually hit. But there was a glitch in the system. There was a failure in the system, and the end result is that nobody knew it was coming. And all these people died. It's something very important about an early warning system, and God has given us a warning that there is a day that is coming in which all we have known about this earth and all we have experienced about this life is going to change, and it's going to change because of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're not the only ones, we Christ followers are not the only ones who believe that this earth is not going to continue the way it is now. Even scientists that control what is called the doomsday clock have now in 2021 set, reset that clock to 100 seconds. 100 seconds before midnight, just over one and a half minutes before midnight, with midnight being the end of the world. They have set the doomsday clock so close to midnight because of the technology that is so available to so many people around the world and evil individuals that intend to use it for destruction. And God says this day is actually coming. The end of the world, it is related to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But we as Christ followers don't have to be afraid because God has an exit strategy for us. God intends to take us out of this world before that moment arrives. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Prophets in the Old Testament told about the coming of the Messiah. And it was really strange the way they laid it all out, that the Messiah would come, God in flesh, born in Bethlehem, raised at least part of his life in the Galilee area, that he would come as lowly and humble as a suffering servant, that he would be, do miraculous things, that he would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, that he would die on a cross, even though the mechanism of the cross was wasn't invented for 800 years 
after the prophecy that he would die a death on the cross, totally described, and that he would die on the behalf of us, dying because of our sins. And yet the same prophets said he would come as a mighty conqueror. He would establish his reign and rule physically, literally on this earth. How in the world can all that happen all at the same time? Though it didn't make any sense at all, they still faithfully recorded what the Holy Spirit had told them to write down. What they didn't understand is that they were actually describing not one coming of the Messiah, but two comings of the Messiah. I've explained this in the past that it, I sort of see it, I, I sort of get an understanding of all that issue when I think about a mountain range and I see from a distance how beautiful, how big this huge mountain is in front of me as I'm driving toward it. But when I get closer, an amazing thing, I discover that there's actually a smaller mountain in front of a larger mountain with a valley in between. You can't see that from a distance, but up close you can. And you and I are living in the valley. We can look back at the first coming of Jesus and all that happened with the prophecies and how he literally fulfilled it, and then we can look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ because we live in the valley in between. Those who take a premillennial view about the second coming of Jesus Christ believe that we should take the Bible literally, that, we, that the Bible is meant to be understood literally. There are times in which that it uses figurative language, but it always makes sure that we understand that it is. But that the Bible ought to be taken literally and seriously when it comes to the prophecies of the second coming. It is interesting to me that, that in the first coming of Jesus, that he was to be born in, the, in Bethlehem, of, he, he was of the lineage of David, that he was coming as a meek and mild suffering servant, that he would perform miracles, that he would live part of his life in the area of Galilee. All these prophecies that he would be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver came literally true. I mean, you could look back, hundreds of prophecies, and Jesus fulfilled literally one after another, after another, after another, after another. Well, it's the same prophets that prophesied the first coming of Christ and who prophesied the second coming of Christ. And even sometimes in the exact same chapter, and it seems to me that if he was fulfilling literally all the prophecies about the first coming, we should interpret literally the second coming of Christ. But suddenly, no, it's got to be figurative. We, it's shadowy. We're not sure what's going to actually happen. Actually, we are sure. We don't know all the details, but what we do know is that he is literally physically coming, and there are literal physical signs of his coming and events that will happen as a part of it. And so, in the premillennial view, we simply take the Bible literally and let it speak. And when you take all of those passages of Scripture and bring them together, there are five key issues that the Bible brings up about the second coming of Christ. The first coming, the first is of the second coming, the first point is this, that the world will grow progressively worse. At God's select time, Christ's followers will be raptured away. The word rapture means to be snatched away. That suddenly, as crazy as it sounds, that suddenly hundreds of millions of us, even, even billions, will suddenly disappear from the face of the earth. Just disappear. 
be gone. Second of all, there will be seven years of tribulation in which the world will see the emergence of a great world leader that the Bible calls in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist. And while the tribulation is taking place, we Christ's followers will be up in heaven and we will be a part of the scene that we have seen in Revelation chapter four and chapter five over the last few weeks that we will experience our judgment before God. And it's not going to be a terrible thing. It's going to be a wonderful thing. It is our time of receiving rewards for our faithful service to God. New believers will come to know Christ during the seven years of tribulation on the earth, but many of them, most of them, will be martyred for their faith. Third, at the end of the seven years, Christ will return and we will come with him. And there he will defeat the Antichrist at the battle, the real battle that the Bible calls the battle of Armageddon and set up a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. I've heard some people say, well, I don't even understand the reason for a thousand year reign on the earth, so it must not be true. Well, it's true because God said it, even if we don't understand what it's about, it's still true because he said it. And it will happen. And we're going to be talking about that battle of Armageddon and the thousand-year reign of Christ next Sunday morning. Then number four, at the end of the thousand years, there will be a great white throne judgment. And everyone who does not know Christ as Savior will be judged at that judgment, and it will not turn out good. And then the fifth, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and time shall be no more. Now, in this short series that we're walking through together about the second coming of Christ, we have arrived at the second part that deals with the subject of the tribulation. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. The Bible, when it talks about in many passages of Scripture about the tribulation, it uses these words. It is called the day of the Lord. It is called the great tribulation. It is called the day of wrath. It is called the day of the vengeance of our God. It is called the day of Jacob's troubles. Five different names that the Bible gives about this period of time. It is obvious that it, in its description, it is very short in nature. It's seven years as it turns out, but it is literal. It is real. It is coming. So what is the tribulation? And how does it start? Well, the Bible actually has a lot to say about it. In fact, the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 6, everything written from chapter 6 of Revelation to chapter 18 is all a point by point by point by point description of those seven years. He takes us through all the things that are going to happen during that time. But the earliest record that I, at least I know about is from the book of Daniel. And Daniel writes about this terrible terrible time that is coming in several of his chapters. The chapter that I love so much is, is uh, about the prophecy of both the first and second coming of Christ is Daniel chapter 9. I think it's one of the greatest prophecies in the entire Bible where it combines the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ.
Christ. It is absolutely amazing. I've taught through that chapter verse by verse in times past, but today I only have time to reference one of the verses because it references this idea of the beginning of the tribulation period. It's found in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. Now this whole chapter is talking about this man that is coming, this great uh, emperor, this great world leader that is going to emerge. He's called in the book of, of Revelation, the Antichrist. And this chapter in Daniel chapter 9 is all about Israel. It's prophecies about Israel. 490 years of prophecies about Israel broken up in certain sections. And the last section is the last seven years. And he is talking about the last seven years of this prophecy for Israel. And here's how he puts it. He, meaning the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many. It's with Israel. He's, this is about the history of Israel. With many for one seven. It's the last seven years of the prophecy that Daniel is laying out. And then he says, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. What Daniel is describing is a world leader who is going to come in a seven-year period that is called the, 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 the tribulation, seven years of tribulation. And he will emerge, and how he will start this seven years will happen because he will sign a peace covenant with Israel. In the middle of that peace covenant with Israel, he will stand in the temple, and he will declare that he is God. When you look at all of this, for the first 1900 years of Christianity, since Jerusalem was destroyed, there was no temple. And so over the last, over those 1900 years, the, the whole explanation of this passage was figurative. We don't understand it. Israel's not here. Maybe if what, we're not sure what this is about. But in 1948, a miracle happened that had never happened before. A country, a people, a nation that had been destroyed and for 1,900 years, the nation itself was not in existence, suddenly came back in 1948. Israel was reborn, and then one war after another in order to gain its independence, where the, it was miraculous how they were able to, to win that battle, to win that war. It was absolutely amazing. And it was obvious that God had brought back the people of Israel, that he had brought back a nation of Israel, that Israel was to be a part, a physical Israel was to be a part of the end times. And suddenly, we're not seeing Israel in this passage of Scripture in Daniel chapter 9 as some figurative thing. We are seeing a literal nation and a literal interpretation of this passage of Scripture. You say, but there's no temple in Israel. Yeah, that's right. I've been to Israel several times, and three or four times I have been to the, the uh, temple uh, institute in which 
they are putting together their whole goal. It's not Christians. It is Jewish people who are believing that God intends to have another temple on that temple mount. They can't do it now for obvious reasons, but that will somehow, some way, go away. And all of a sudden, there will be the opportunity to rebuild that temple. And the Temple Institute's whole purpose is to build all of the, the uh, furniture that fits into the temple. It's all been built. Every minute little thing about the worship of the Old Testament and New Testament has already been manufactured and in place, and they're just waiting. They're just waiting. How is it that they will be able to worship on the Temple Mount and a new temple? They don't know, but they know in their heart of hearts. I've heard them speak of it. I've been there. I've learned, listened to the lectures, and there is a sense in their heart. They say, God is leading. He will have another temple on this Temple Mount, and actually Daniel agrees with it. In the middle of those seven years, this world leader, this man that the Bible calls the Antichrist, will break that covenant with Israel. He will stand on the Temple Mount. He will declare himself to be God. And all hell will break loose when that takes place. There's never been a time in history like this, as Daniel is describing. There was a day in, in Jewish history in which a Grecian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, at least that's how I pronounce his name, Antiochus Epiphanes rose up, came to the temple. It was during between the Old Testament and New Testament times, and he came into the temple, he sacrificed a pig on the altar, and he declared himself to be God. And the Jewish people rose up against him, and it was a miraculous thing. He was so much more powerful than those individuals were, the Maccabees. And they rose up against him, and God delivered the people of Israel. And that's how Hanukkah was birthed. The celebration of Hanukkah is of that moment. But Jesus mentions Daniel chapter 9 in, uh, in Matthew 24 as he's giving the signs of the times of the end days. And Antiochus Epiphanes was not the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. It is still to come. It will come at the tribulation. Daniel's prophecy says the tribulation period will be seven years. He's very clear about this, that there will be a great world leader who will be the Antichrist, and the tribulation will begin with the signing of a peace treaty with Israel. It is a treaty that the Antichrist will violate halfway through the seven years. Now, here's the next question. What's going to happen during this tribulation time? The tribulation will last seven years. The Bible divides it, divides it into two parts, each three and a half years. The first section is called the wrath of the Lamb. The second section is called the wrath of God or the great tribulation. So what will happen in the first half? The first half will begin with that peace treaty with Israel. The Antichrist will sign that peace treaty, and the clock will begin. Do you remember last week when we were in uh, Revelation chapter 5, and all of a sudden as we were there worshiping before the throne of God, God picks up a scroll. And you remember the scroll. It's sort of the last will and testament of the universe, and he picks up the scroll, and nobody was able to open the scroll. 
until the hero of heaven, Jesus, comes and he grabs hold of that scroll and he is able to, to open the seals of the scroll. And all of us burst out. We're all there in heaven and we burst out in our praise and adoration of him. The first six seals of that seven-sealed scroll are opened in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, one after another after another. And John lays it all out beginning in Revelation chapter 6. The first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And tragedy and disaster after disaster happens on the face of the earth as these seals are opened. The Antichrist takes center stage in world history, and he begins the development, the, the pulling together of a one-world government and a one-world economic system and a one-world military and a one-world religion. And John lays it all out there for us exactly point by point how it will all emerge. Listen, for the last 40 or 50 years, our whole world has been moving together, not like exactly yet a one-world government, but moving with a sense of undercurrent philosophy of in that direction. Our economies are so tied together that if one economy of one country goes down, it affects everybody else. Never in the history of mankind has it ever been like this. But we are so tied together because of technology. We are so merging together as technology that we now affect each other constantly. And in that moment, this guy will take control, he will take charge, and he will bring together a one government system. All of the talk today of all religions have, have an equal pathway to God. All that talk is to get ready, not consciously, but to get the world ready for a one world religion. And during this time, chaos will reign, the Bible says, and one-fourth of the world's population will die through pestilence. Boy, we understand that better now. And through earthquakes and through military endeavors, all the way through the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There will be people that are saved during those three and a half years, but the Bible says that most of them will be martyred for their faith. The second half of the tribulation period is started by the Antichrist breaking the peace treaty with Israel at the halfway mark, standing in the temple, declaring himself to be God. And the last half of the tribulation will have terrible judgments poured out upon the world, God says, as bowls of wrath and trumpets of wrath, and it will be the worst period in world history. And at the end of those seven years, Jesus Christ will return with us, and a real battle of Armageddon will take place, and we will watch it happen. What is the purpose of all of this? What, what is this, the whole reason for this seven years of tribulation, this whole thing? Why is it happening? Well, first of all, it's is Satan's last desperate attempt to destroy the work of God through the introduction of Satan's own Messiah, the Antichrist, and his attempt to lead the entire world in rebellion against God. Second of all, it is God's final attempt to bring as many people to himself as possible. 
The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I believe the literal interpretation of this verse, he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. But in that day, he has used today kindness and gentleness and patience. But in that day, he will use wrath. And still most will reject him. The third thing is that the great tribulation is the final judgment of God on the earth against sin and wickedness on the earth. And who will go through this great tribulation? Who will experience this? Everybody that is alive at the time of the signing of that peace covenant and the permission to be able to rebuild that temple. Everybody that is alive then, but it will not include us. It will not include Christ's followers because God will come. Christ will meet us in the air at the rapture of the church and he will take us home before that begins. And he will rescue us. Now listen to me. There are great people that are godly men and women who, who are theologians who believe differently than I do. They believe that we'll go through half of the tribulation. We'll experience the first three and a half years, and then Christ will come back. There are other theologians who believe that we'll go through all seven years of the tribulation, and then Christ will come back. But I disagree. And why? Here are the reasons. First, Jesus said that he would come when he was not expected. He said he would come as a thief in the night. He said that no one knows the time or the season in which he'll return. But the moment we see a peace covenant signed with Israel in which the, the temple can be rebuilt, we can start counting the clock at that very moment. No, we will know exactly when Jesus is coming back. Either it's going to be on the day that marks half of the tribulation or it'll be at the end of the tribulation, but we will know exactly when he's coming back. In other words, this verse that the Bible gives to us that we will not know when he's coming back could not be true unless he comes before it all begins. Second of all, we are told in the Bible to be looking for Christ. But if we don't go, if Christ doesn't come back for us until halfway through the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation, we're not looking for Christ. We're looking for the tribulation to begin. And suddenly what the Bible has told us to do, we're not doing. Third, the church is not found anywhere in Revelations chapter 6 to 18, the section of the book of Revelation that explains the tribulation. Those who believe that somehow the church age is the tribulation age are not understanding what we're seeing in the book. All the way through chapters 1 through 5 of the book of Revelation, the church is mentioned over and over and over and over and over again, and suddenly silence about the church until chapter 19, and suddenly the church is mentioned over and over and over again. Why is it not mentioned between chapter 16 and chapter 18? Because we aren't here. Listen, listen to what the passage says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
That's the period before that tribulation begins. But in the middle of the tribulation, look what it says. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 9, he who has an ear, let him hear. Where is the last phrase? What the Spirit says to the churches. It doesn't say that because the churches aren't there. Fourth, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 says that we will not have to go through that terrible period of time that the Bible calls the tribulation. Revelation 3.10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. What is this hour of great trial that the whole earth will experience? It's the seven years of tribulation. There is no other time period that the Bible ever mentions than that. It is a promise that those who are Christ's followers will not go through that time. And here is the fifth is this. The purpose of the tribulation is to be a time of outpouring of wrath on the world, not on the church. God's not mad at his kids. God is pouring out his judgment on the world system that has turned people from him. And maybe you're asking, you're thinking right now, okay, Mark Hartman, but what if you're wrong? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. When I see the signing of that peace covenant with Israel and the permission to rebuild that temple in Jerusalem, as Daniel talks about in those last seven years, and we're still here, I will stand up on this platform and say, well, I was wrong about that, and now my job is to get us through the tribulation, and I'll do my best to do it. And guess what? I will be martyred, and you will be too. Neither one of us will make it to the end of those seven years. Good. I heard that word, good. And you know what? That's true. Martyrdom is one second, and the next second you're in heaven with God. But what a privilege to die for the name of Jesus Christ. You are right. It is good. But personally, I want to be raptured out of here before all that all starts. Now listen to me. What should we do with this message? You need to get saved. That's what you need to do. You need to give your heart to Jesus Christ. You need to turn your heart to the only hope you have of salvation. You need to turn your heart to the one who came and he died on that cross and he paid the penalty for your sin and he rose again from the grave and he says, I loved you enough to die for you and I'm coming back and I'm giving you the warning. You better get saved before this happens. Oh, I'll just wait until I see it all happen and then I'll be martyred. Well, I'm going to tell you something. You may be in one fourth of those people that die in the first three and a half years and you don't get saved. Get saved now. And why go through that when you can give your heart to Jesus Christ? Give your heart to the Lord today. I'm asking every one of you online, turn your heart to the Lord. And in a few moments, there's going to be this Next Step Center offer for you to talk to one of our ministers online. And I'm asking you, would you do it? Would you make that decision? 
Make that phone call. Give your heart to the Lord and for everybody that are listening on all of our campuses to me right now. Give your heart to the Lord. Go to the physical next step center on your campus and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and, oh, God, you have given us the warning in advance And every sign Jesus gave to us is all being fulfilled at this very moment. And all the description that Daniel makes about what will happen at the end and John makes in the book of Revelation, we are seeing it happen before our very eyes. We live in the day in which all the world can experience this very same thing. Oh, God, this is the moment that we've got to become so serious with you to give our heart to Christ, to recommit our heart by faith to Jesus Christ. God, move in our hearts today that we might honor you and love you and come to know your son and turn our heart by faith and live for you. Oh, God, help us to make that decision today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.